Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. I just want to take a second before we get to the show today to say that every day we bring you conversations from across the NPR network. We've got a whole squad of hosts and producers with you know their own tastes and interests helping us bring you your next read. And NPR's journalism relies on your support to keep it free for everybody. So please consider a donation to help not just us at the Book of the Day podcast, but the NPR network as a whole at donate.npr.org books. You know, books are such an integral part of our lives from that first book our parents read to us to that one book we read when we were 13 that really warped our mind to the book that, OK, you know, maybe we read the spark notes for in high school, but came back to as an adult and realized it was pretty good. Come on, that's not just me, right? Anyway, we do this podcast every day to get you thinking about an interview or a topic or maybe get your own creative juices stewing by hearing from a wide swath of writers. Help us keep doing it for another year at npr.org slash books. Thank you so much. Okay, let's get to today's pod. Today on the pod, we've got two books offering their vastly different takes on a very popular scenario, A Girl Has Gone Missing. In a bit, we'll hear from Ashley Flowers, host of the popular true crime podcast Crime Junkie. She's out with her debut novel. But first, Yohande Leaky Holmes' new novel, Strega, is a little bit more lyrical, a little more conceptual. It's a Swedish novel that just got translated into English. And it's funny, she says in this interview with NPR Scott Simon that readers have told her that they see it as this feminist book about female friendship. But what she was actually writing about is violence and complicity. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, helps you build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. Check out The Noom Kitchen for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Strega, the new novel by Johanne Leakey Holm, begins with a scene that almost slaps you in the face. It's in a bedroom. The bedsheets are stained with milk and blood. Their hairpins, sleeping pills, and undergarments around. And Raphaela, the 19-year-old narrator, says, I knew a woman's life could at any point be turned into a crime scene. The crime scene was not the bed, but the body. The crime had already taken place book tells the story of Raffaella, a young woman who eventually goes to work in a resort hotel where no guests seem to visit. Strega is translated from the Swedish by Saskia Vogel, and Johanny Likiholm joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Tell us about this uh, resort hotel, which after finishing the book, I am reluctant to call a hotel <laughs> in which nine teenage women come to work. Uh, yes, the hotel is called the Olympic, and it's located in these fictitious Italian mountains. I would describe it as eerie, and it is run by three older women. By older, <laughs> the narrator Rafa would refer to people over 25. These nine girls, they work every day just taking care of the hotel, they make the beds, they clean the rooms, they make food and so on. But no one ever shows up. Yeah. And close by there is a community of nuns who also have this kind of 
live this kind of life where every day resembles uh, the next. And this repetition, this like almost theater-like reproduction that they play out the same day again and again until one day uh, one of them goes missing. This is Cassie. This and is Cassie, yes. We'll, we'll get to her story. Um, I found myself asking pretty early on in the novel, why would their families want their daughters to work at a place like the Olympic Hotel? I think to understand that there is this chapter in the novel where it is described how the parents have this idea that the girls mm-hmm. um, should be prepared for a life where they will take care of their husband, their children, and be what you would call good women. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, that woman, of course, doesn't exist anymore, or maybe she has, has never existed. I think the hotel is this weird prison where all the doors are open. They could just leave whenever, but they don't. And why don't they just leave I think that's the main question of the book. What gets set off when Cassie goes missing, one of the young women? What does it set off in Rafi and others? I actually think that what happens is that they just keep reenacting this weird performance or play that they are in. They are kind of playing a game. Mm -hmm. They don't react in a what you would call a really like loving and normal way. They do not call her parents right away. They don't call the police. They don't seem to be that distraught. In some of the scenes, they are almost excited, I would say. Like it's all a film. Well, I mean, it's, forgive me, it's diversion. Yeah. You know, it's something different. (laughs) Yes. To break up their time. Exactly. Many readers have told me that they see Strega as this feminist saga almost uh, about yeah. female friendship and in some way they read it like this kind of utopia. To me it's more about how these girls are complicit with the violence and the horrors of the world yeah. and how they are actually not rebellious. Yeah, complicit in violence committed against women. is Exactly, yeah. The narrator says women are born into a world in which many crimes will be committed against them. Yes. Yeah. Strega means witch in yes. Italian, right? Yes. And that's that's not an accident, is it? No, it isn't. To me, Strega is this really emblematic word. Yeah. It is not just the meaning witch. It is also how it looks. It is also this funny, I would call it, connection with the Italian liquor called Strega, this really yellow yeah. herbal alcoholic drink. But to me, the word Strega holds information about hidden knowledge, hidden practices, mm-hmm. maybe the things uh, women have been doing in secret. And I think that is an aspect of human history, this sounds really bombastic, but Mm. that I've tried to tap into. That women have been special victims of... of Yes, but also that, I mean, in the word witch, the word witch is both this accusation and also this really honorable thing to be. 
Mm-hmm. It is both the aggression and the power, if that makes sense. It, it, yeah. it is both w- what you are called by the witch hunters and what you are uh, as a woman in a community with uh, special practices in regarding nature and all sorts of things. And I think that is the magic of the word strega, that it, it has both these dimensions. You know, I am a cisgendered man who has read the novel and liked it. I'm wondering if there's something specific you would like readers who are not women to absorb. I think the book tries to unveil this hidden secret, which is not a secret to girls and women. I think the quotes in the beginning with every woman's life turning into a crime scene, Mm -hmm. that the crime has already taken place. I think that is where the novel just spells it out. That is what the novel is trying to show the reader. And if the reader is a girl or a woman, she might recognize this hidden secret from inside herself or inside themselves. And as a cisgendered man, I think the novel holds this opportunity to hear something uh, that's usually just spoken about when mm-hmm. you're not present. Johanna Licky Holm, her novel, Strega. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Every week, Ashley Flowers is in millions of ears, breaking down a true crime story. And that's given her a lot of insight into crime stories, you know, why they work and what they tend to miss. She's got her debut crime novel out now called All Good People Here, which deals not just with the crime itself and the victim, but, as she puts it to NPR's Michelle Martin, the ripple effect that happens with violent crime and how it can change entire families. If you are a fan of the true crime genre, then you surely know the name Ashley Flowers. She's the co-host and producer of the hit podcast Crime Junkie, which gets millions of downloads each week. And that's not all. She also created Supernatural with Ashley Flowers, International Infamy, and Very Presidential. And on top of all of that, she has a new novel out. It's called All Good People Here. And she is here with us now to tell us more about it. Ashley Flowers, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So how did you fall in love with the true crime genre? And I'm wondering why you think it's so popular. Like, I mean, it, it's become so embedded in the culture. For example, there have been several Saturday Night Live skits about it. There was one I remember that had these glamorous stars playing mommies out on the town, and all they really wanted to do was go home and yeah. listen to true crime <laughs> podcasts. So how did you fall in love with it, and why do you think it's taken off as it has? Well, I fell in love with it or got interested in it because I always say my mom and her mother before her, they were my OG crime junkies. And I grew up reading mystery novels, Nancy Drew, Agatha Christie. And at some point in my life, I realized that these mysteries weren't all fiction and that these things were really happening. And there was just something in me that was drawn to 
the unsolved cases specifically, something about a puzzle that needed to be solved and not having resolution. And I think that's what so many people are drawn to. And I don't know that it that it's gotten more popular. What I really believe is that we all are collectively figuring out it's not just us. <laughs> because I think, you know, when I look back at myself in high school, even college, I had always been obsessed with it. I knew my close group of friends had been deeply invested in it. And we just thought we were kind of the outliers and the weirdos. And I think now we're all just realizing we're interested in the same thing. And now let's talk about it and bring light to these cases. So the book we're going to talk about is fiction. Yes. What made you want to do a novel, you know, on top of everything else you have going on? Well, I had had this story like kind of percolating in the back of my head for years. And it obviously wasn't true crime, so it didn't really fit into what I was doing with Crime Junkie or The Deck or some of my weekly shows. I didn't really want to write a fictional podcast about a crime because I didn't want to take away from the real crimes I was talking about. So as I just tried to figure out what this was or how I could bring this to life, it kind of naturally became a book. So the plot... Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Like, how can we, how to, okay, I'm trying to, I, I need you to help me yeah. to describe it without giving it all away. Because sure. part of the deliciousness of it is the crazy twists and turns that it takes. So do you want to help me, help me out? Sure. So it is about a journalist named Margot, And I, I set the whole thing here in Indiana where I live. And she returns to her small hometown to help take care of her ailing uncle. And while she is in town, a young girl goes missing. And it's kind of reminiscent of an unsolved case from back when she was young, when her neighbor was abducted and eventually murdered. And she kind of takes it upon herself there while she's there in town to try and really figure out once and for all what happened to her neighbor, her friend, because everyone has a theory in a case that's gone unsolved for 25 years. Everyone thinks they know what happened. But the truth of the matter is nobody really knows what's happening behind closed doors in a home, within a family, and within an investigation. I think the thing that the book talks about is that, you know, crime isn't just one thing that happens one time or perhaps several times, but it's also what leads up to the act and what follows from it and how it affects mm-hmm. all the people mm-hmm. that it touches. It's not just something that happens to one person or perhaps even one family, but that's sort of the concentric rings around it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that captured that really sensitively. Thank you. I mean, that was a big driving force for me when I was creating this, because that is something that I have seen in working with families in real cases who have lost someone. And I was just talking to the, um, about this with a family member who lost someone yesterday. The ripple effect that happens with violent crime and that it takes away not just the person, but the family around it, and it will change the way sisters and brothers go on to be parents themselves, the way that a parent will parent will be different. And really what I wanted to get across to in the book is so much judgment is placed on the family of a violent crime. They should have done this. They're not acting the right way. That in a time when someone is already traumatized and grieving, we tend to inflict 
more trauma by making judgments from the outside when, again, we don't know what's happening behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I was, as I was saying, look, I, I come from a family of cops and I am a journalist and I did do local news and I did do local <laughs> crime reporting. So it does feel very real to me, like apart from the fact I didn't grow up in Wakarusa, but, you know, <laughs> but the fact that I am so connected to people who, um, you know, because I'm so connected to police officers, just because of my family and because that's kind of the family business. I wonder if it ever gets to you. I mean, does it ever change the way you view people? And I, I ask because coming from a family of, of a lot of p- people in my family have been in law have been in law enforcement over the years. I just wonder if spending so much time thinking about the worst that people can do to each other, do you think that it changes you or it changes how you see the world? It gets really heavy some days. And what I'll say is I couldn't live in this if I wasn't trying to do something to change it. Because everyone always asks me what my outlet is. How do I decompress from all of this? And I truly believe there's some people who, like your family, there's some people who are meant to do this kind of work and to live in these kind of stories who can handle it in a different way than potentially other people. But I have always based my career around giving back. I've always said that the true crime community is like any other relationship. I can't just take and take these stories and not give back. And so from the beginning, our mission with our true crime content has been to support families, to support causes, nonprofits, and help solve cases. And so even the days where it feels really heavy and I feel like we're living in a world full of evil people, I think the thing that gets me to the better days is knowing that if I wasn't doing it, if I wasn't talking about these cases, diving into these cases, that I think the world would be a worse place because of all of the time and energy, money we've been able to donate. I started a nonprofit called Season of Justice that funds testing for cold cases, and we've gone on to solve three homicides. Mm -hmm. So that is what keeps me in it. And even when the days are hard, that's what makes it feel not as hard. Did did you ever foresee this? I mean, did you, I mean, when you, I mean, can you, I, I mean, did you foresee this? You're kind of the, I don't know how to say it. You're like at the head of an empire. I I dreamed big, but I didn't know how to dream this big. I always knew that I wanted a network. It was never just going to be one podcast for me. But I think I underestimated how people would respond and receive the content and how much they wanted to get involved the same way I did. And I think that's what's really helped the company kind of explode in the way it has and and become its own little empire. Ashley Flowers is co-host of the insanely popular Crime Junkie podcast, among others. Her novel, All Good People Here, is out now. Ashley Flowers, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Armiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Emiko Tamagawa, Todd Munt, Shirley Jihad, Catherine Welch, Gujit Kaur, Timbi Ermias, Fernando Naro Roman, Adil Al-Salji, Kira Wakim, and Natalie Friedman-Winston. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening.
This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the American Cancer Society. By the end of this message, two people will be told they have cancer. Yes, every 15 seconds, someone is diagnosed with cancer. But by the end of this message, you could do something about it with your donation. A gift of any amount to the American Cancer Society can help those facing cancer get free rides to care or a free place to stay closer to treatment. Donate today at cancer.org. Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation, and who those accusations hurt the most. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. 